Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to say welcome. Uh, if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 15, and <clears throat> if you'll indulge me just for a moment, I, I want to say welcome to those who are guests here today. Uh, my wife Stephanie and I look forward to meeting you after the service, uh, but you may be here, and maybe you've been here for a while, or you're a member here a long time, and you wonder why we do things like wind-shaped camps. Is that something new? Is something that's unfamiliar to us as a church? And what's not unfamiliar to us is a desire to reach our community with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we believe that kind of shifting our focus away from BBS uh, allows us to do something more than just borrow families from other churches, but actually reach this local community. Now, this is being done in partnership with our local Chick-fil-A, uh, Windshape is a, a foundation that was established by the, the founder of Chick-fil-A, and this is a wonderful opportunity for us, uh, be, but it's going to take more than just our staff. It's going to take more than just volunteers through TruthQuest, uh, of which I know that they are regularly wanting more and more of. It's going to take all of us as a church gathering together and having this same heart, uh, a mission here in Castleberry. As a church, as a people who are on mission, even as Mike said just a moment ago, our church is locally focused, but we're regionally deployed. I think about this. We've got several families in the church that they work out at like the, what I used to know as Martin Marietta, and I still refer to it that way, out at Lockheed. We've got other families that are all the way on the other end, it feels like, of Orlando in, in the Lake Mary area at Deloitte, and then kind of everywhere in between throughout Central Florida. We are regionally deployed. We're on mission in those workplaces, in our homes and campuses, uh, thereabouts. And then we're globally engaged. You heard that through Grace Partnership. But these are opportunities for us as a church to continue to seek to reach the lost with the good news of the gospel. We're not here to borrow from other churches. We're not here to try to have the latest and hottest thing going. We're here to encounter the living God and see him bring those who are dead back to life by his great power. And perhaps that's something that weighs on your heart, but you think, I don't have children in TruthQuest anymore. Or you think, I, I, I'm in business now, my, my focus is given to that part of the mission, and, and you may think, well, th th that doesn't necessarily qualify me for being a part of something like Windshape Camps. And can I just speak to that lie? That's not true. We need all of us as a church to have this heart. The gospel doesn't require one person to do all the things. Well, he was Jesus. But none of us are. And so we need one another. We are the embodiment of his body here on the earth today, the church. That's what he left us here to go about his work and to be a part of his mission. That's why he commissions us to this good work. And, and rather than delaying anymore, we decided just to have a, a gathering today for those who might be interested in how you can participate in what we're planning for this summer with Windshape Camps. It's going to be in June. Uh, we're actually going to have a uh, interest meeting right after the service in the TruthQuest assembly room. And so if you want to join us for that and kind of see what it is that we are a part of as this mission that we are on, uh, I'd, I'd invite you to be there. Heather's going to share some others that have been a part of Windshape in the past. Uh, but I love that we are taking these types of steps, being forward-facing and kind of uh, going after our community rather than just sitting back and expecting them to come into our open doors when we have gatherings like this. I hope that's your heart as well. Perhaps you're here this morning and that there's something that stirs in you about that and you think, <clears throat> I love that idea, but 
it's not that I don't have anything to give because I don't have children here. It's not that I don't have anything to give because I don't have the resources to be able to do that. It's not because I don't have anything to give because I don't have the time to give to that. You may find yourself in the place that as you came into the building today, and maybe you still feel this way sitting where you are now, that you just say, I, I don't have anything to give because I feel so spiritually dry. I feel like I don't have anything to give because I, I feel like I'm in this wilderness season. I wonder if I were to go around the room and just kind of ask, I'm not going to do that, but like how many of us have ever been through a wilderness season? I think I would have to raise my hand twice. I have to raise both hands. I've been through wilderness seasons. But more than that, God anticipated those moments and he meets us today. Consider the words from Psalm 63 verses 1 through 4 where David, as he's in the wilderness of Judah, says this, Oh God, you are my God and earnestly... I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name will I lift up my hands. Perhaps you've already encountered that this morning. You were singing words that you go, God, I want these to be true. And so you raise your hands and surrender to him saying, God, I am putting myself at a posture of saying, you are the name above all other names. Hallelujah. God be praised above all other names. But you're aware that in the life of the believer, the awareness of the presence of God is better than life itself. My heart and flesh may fail, but his presence will always be there with me. You know, that, that contrasts with those who rebel against the presence of God, doesn't it? Those who, when they are in the presence of God, they squirm at the nearness of God. They, they recoil at the thought of worshiping a God who is with us. There's this sense of they don't want to be a part of that. And you know, David's experience of blessing while he thirsts points us to something that Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 5. That blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this morning, do you find yourself thirsty for the presence of God? A soul weary because you hunger for the things of his presence. You find yourself with a view of all of the unrighteousness around you, perhaps in your family or in your workplace or just in what we encounter in everyday news. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you wonder how it is, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead in John 15, how it is that God's people can rejoice. Well, don't be dismayed, church. God instructs us not only in how to identify what it is that's going on in us in those moments, how to identify the things that we might be connecting ourselves to or seeking after that are not a true source of good in his presence, but he instructs us how it is to get back to that place of understanding our right relationship with him. That's good news for us. In other words, God doesn't just save us and then move on from us. He saves us, and he continues to pursue us. That's good news for us today, church. 
And it's how I want us to have a posture of mind as we read in John chapter 15. We're going to look at the first six verses of this chapter today. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Father, may your word revive our weary hearts today. May they uphold souls that are weighed down by the things of the world. May they renew minds filled with lies and not truths from you. And may we live for your glory as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You don't have to be in church for a long time for this to be a familiar passage. The last time that we preached about this passage was over eight years ago. And yet, it's not the last time we referenced this passage. Oftentimes, John chapter 15 becomes the application point of other passages in Scripture, rather than the central theme of what it is that Jesus is saying. Now, where we're at in the timeline of Jesus' life here on earth is, he is heading toward our salvation. He's heading to the cross. He's not trying to cram in all the things that he has forgotten to tell us as if it's a parent that is surprised by a wedding that is coming up sometime soon and they're trying to just say, well, what are all the things I meant to say to you? And then they're trying to pack it all in within a, a confined amount of time. No, he's being intentional to give instruction to those who have been following with him to know how it is to live for the glory of what he's about to do on our behalf. See, we need this Savior but we need this lesson from him as our savior to know how to live for him in light of his salvation. We don't just need this to be the application point of other passages. We don't need this to just be something that gets added on to other truths in our lives. We need this to be something very central to how it is that we understand when we get up in the morning, when we go about our day, when we lie down our head at night, what it looks like to live for him. This isn't the call for just any one of us. This isn't some setup for some sort of spiritual elevation or promotion. These are fundamental truths in the Christian life. And we want to give attention to them because Jesus tells us to. If we want to be about his work, we want to be about his words to us. If we want to be about his words to us, we want to look to his word and begin to dive into that and ask questions of it and ask questions of ourselves and say, Lord, bring light in my life where there's darkness. Where this heaviness of soul, where this 
this sense of uh, an abandonment from your presence is due to my own action or it's due to my own inaction in your name. Lord, reveal those things to me and bring me back to a right relationship with you. Today, I, I think that we're going to be skirting around some very deep theological truths. And my, I, my, my hope is to speak to them very plainly so that we might all understand them. I'm not here to get into controversies about the order of salvation or the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this or when this happens or that happens. And the reason I don't do that is because I've heard testimonies around this church that go out of order. It's not like I have to look around the world for the supernatural things. You sitting here gathered today are a part of the supernatural work of God. There you are. Today, my hope is to release us from even, as Mike said just a moment ago, in discipleship, having a sense that we are about a spiritual to-do list to earn or gain God's favor. I wonder for us sometimes, church, how often our spiritual weariness comes from trying to do things in our own strength rather than leaning wholly on Jesus' finished work on our behalf. Didn't it, wasn't it wonderful to sing this morning? The cross still stands. The blood still flows toward you and me. His work is still finished. And hell still knows it. That's good news for us. I want to live in light of that good news. So I look to his words and I see right out of the gate that Jesus says, I am the true vine. And we're going to stop right there. That means there's false vines. That, that means that there are false vines that we can be connected to. And I wonder, church, if we can identify what the false vines are that we try to connect ourselves to. And my hope today is to instruct us in how it is that we might go about that. But I want to do so very carefully because I'm going to speak about the nation of Israel in the way that scripture speaks about the nation of Israel. Anytime I bring up the nation of Israel right now, I'm speaking beyond the headlines to something that actually reigns above the headlines. And that's the word of God about Israel. Israel in Scripture is God's chosen people. But we recognize that the work of the good news of the gospel, the work of the kingdom of God, has escaped the bounds that we see in Scripture, and it now today is for you and for me. So when I'm speaking of Israel, I am not speaking of it in some way that is about some sort of judgment that is happening today. I want to be clear about that because my heart breaks over what is happening in the Middle East. I think about Palestinian Christians who are cut off from supply. I think about those who would truly be innocent, who are losing their lives. I think about a nation trying to gain an identity. I think about another nation trying to retain an identity. And I see strife that does not go back to the mid-40s. It goes back to biblical times. And I can struggle to understand those things, but what I don't want to do is get so caught up in those things that I miss the spiritual truths that are contained therein, in God's Word, and how they apply to us today. Multiple times in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's vine. Do you understand why I was a bit concerned about using Israel? Israel's called God's vine. 
Isaiah 5, 7 says it this way, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That's pretty clear. I don't need to dive into the Hebrew to help us understand that. It's pretty plain. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And this is where I begin to say, we are not talking about today's events in the Middle East. We are not talking about what President Biden should or shouldn't do in response to what does or doesn't happen. And, and because of what does or doesn't happen because of a clan of a, a nation state that has been funded by somehow us. I'm not talking about those things. There's plenty of time to talk about those things in other settings. My assumption is you already do. So what do we do with Isaiah 5-7? Well, Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture so we understand Isaiah 5-7 in light of what we see in Psalm 80. Psalm 80-14 says this, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. Now the Psalms are pointing to Christ. The Psalms are pointing to Jesus Christ, and so when the, the God of hosts is looking down from heaven, and he has regard for this vine, what he is saying is, those who are your people, receive your regard from the redemption of Jesus Christ. They receive your regard from Jesus Christ. So when Jesus calls himself the true vine, he's contrasting with false vines. But let's, let's put it in the context of John's day. Let's put it in the context of what would have been going on at that time. Let's say a person came to the religious leaders of the day and said, I would like to know how to be made right with God. How can I go about that? How can I be made right with God? And here we identify with a problem that we have as mankind. We want to know how to be made right with God. How is it that we can be sure that we're right with God? And so the leaders of the day would have said, well, you should become a part of the nation of Israel. You should get circumcised. You should bring sacrifices to the altar. You should celebrate the Jewish festivals and the holy days that are a part of this work. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is instead of becoming an Israelite, you need to follow me. It's not about what nation you're from. It's not about the checklists you go about. It's about the relationship that you have with me. He's saying it's not about your heritage. It's not about your past. It's not about your failures or your accomplishments. It's about your relationship with me. Here's the point. The path to God doesn't go through false vines. In this case, we might see that as the nation of Israel. No, the path to God goes through Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know how to be right with God, you don't need to become a citizen of Israel to become right with God. You need to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to be one of his followers. Don't worry about being in Israel. Focus on being in Jesus. That's Jesus' point. See, false vines are always going to try to tell us other ways to get to God, to appease His wrath, to earn His love, to purchase His favor, to manipulate His blessing. But union with Jesus, a connection to the true vine, it's the only way to please the vine dresser. That is God the Father. The only way to please God the Father is through Jesus Christ, enlightened and enabled by the Holy Spirit at work in us. So we connect to the true vine so that we might be true disciples. 
we can take note of things like what Jesus declared in, in John 10, where he says that there, there in no uncertain terms, he says that those whom he gives eternal life shall never perish. So if you're here today and you're concerned, well, how is it that I'm sure? How is it that I know? Know this, that those he secures, those he gives eternal life to will never die. What Jesus says of the destiny of the fruitless branches reads more like an eternal condemnation than something happens here on this earth, a chastisement that comes to us here on this earth. And so in John's gospel, what we see is that a transitory, a superficial, a surfacey faith or belief that may be based solely on miracles but is not grounded in or the fruit of saving is not a true disciple. These are difficult things to wrap our mind around. My, my, my goal here today is not to sow doubts of your faith. My goal today is to rightly source your faith, anchored and grounded to the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Not anything that has to do with attendance, although we want you to be gathered with us. Not anything that has to do with what you are called to do, or, although we are called up to things as disciples, as we'll see in just a moment. But we have to make sure that we have a right understanding and a trust in who Jesus really is as the one who offers us salvation. You know, there can be a sense that we can be gathered here today because we enjoy the connection that we feel maybe mentally or emotionally with Jesus. Some may be even called disciples, and yet they're not Christian disciples. We can struggle with this. But if we look just a, a couple of passages back, look at John 13, 10. What does it say? It says, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, it's easy for us to begin to understand as we know that Jesus is washing the disciples' feet here. He's talking, he's talking specifically to the twelve, of which Judas was one, the one who would betray him. And I'm not here today to say I'd like all of the Judases to stand and go to that side of the room. Jesus will take care of that one day. But I am here to say this. What Jesus is talking about when he, sa when he calls us to abide in him and when he says that we are already clean in verse 3 because of the word that he has already spoken to us, what he is talking about in those moments is not anything that is based on our feelings. It's something that is based in the truth that is established in heaven about our union with Christ Jesus. Isn't it good news that the way that God feels about us is not based on how we feel about him? It is fixed in the heavens how it is that Jesus looks at us. It is fixed in the heavens how it is that we are connected to him. And so it allows us, when we think about the idea of pruning, to say, here I am, Lord. Not just use me, prune me. Prune me. I wonder how many times the way that we feel about God is based on the circumstances that we're walking through. Circumstances that seem to overwhelm that we can't find our way in the midst of, let alone find our way out of. 
And we think, God must not love me right now. Have you ever considered that the difficulty that you're walking through right now might be an act of kindness on God's part towards you? I don't know what everybody's walking through in this room, but let me just assume this. It ain't pretty. It's not pleasant. It's not the thing that when you were writing your vows that you dreamed of. When you said, Lord, give us the blessing of children that you thought of. That when you were in the midst of pursuing that degree for that career that you realized it was going to have this kind of claim or cost in your life. Let me make that assumption, but let us not assume wrongly about what God's doing in the midst of it. That might be an act of kindness towards you so that you might bear fruit. Bearing fruit is not for our benefit, it's for the glory of God. If bearing fruit were for our benefit, why would any of us look for a Savior? We look for a Savior because we recognize that we have a need that we cannot accomplish on our own. We, there is a lack on our own ability. And so if we are living our lives because we are trying to bear spiritual fruit for ourselves, we are not living our lives for the Savior that laid down His life for us. See, His is the sacrificial love, as we'll see next week in this passage. But shaping of us as believers takes a sharp blade, and it produces pain. But it is a reminder of God's love and commitment to us. You know, in verse 2, we see these words. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Those are sobering words. I had to take some branches away in my yard this week. They went into a fire on Thursday night. I told Shane I was practicing for this morning. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Wait a minute, I'm already bearing fruit. Yeah, he prunes, why? So that it can bear all the more. This isn't the biblical concept of when you pull one gray hair, two grow back in its place. We all know that's true, right? This is the biblical concept that those who are in Christ Jesus in order to bear fruit are pruned, even in the midst of fruitfulness. Why? So that the fruitfulness can grow all the more. You know, I think it's difficult at times for us to consider pruning and being taken away in healthy ways. Too often we see pruning as lopped off. We see it as separation, not preparation for future fruitfulness. There is a place where there is a severed, a severing that happens due to not producing a death that has happened in the vine. Or the branch, I should say. It is cut off. That is a truth. But there is also where a branch may be producing fruit, but in order for it to produce more fruit, it has to be cleaned off at the very end of it. So rather than being lopped off at the source, it is cleaned off at the end of it. It is pinched off by hand oftentimes, rather than something that happens where it is given a sharp shear. It's cleared or it's cleaned for the producing of other fruit. Oftentimes, this is where we see a vine will actually branch out in other ways. If you look at vine dressing throughout different regions, you might see that there are multiple ways to take a vine. You can take a vine straight up and 
make it out as a tea. You can take a, a vine to where it comes up in several different places from the roots that are there. This seems to be the evil weeds that are in my front garden right now. Every season, we pull them. Every year, they come back. We haven't found the main source yet. Apparently, all I'm doing is cleaning off the end for future fruitfulness of these weeds. There are at times where they are bunched up. They, the, the, the vines, the branches become so heavy that they are actually bunched up and upheld. They are put up on a different structure so that they are held up in place. Why? So that they don't receive the rot from being on the ground. So that they might produce a full bounty by being upheld by something that they are not themselves producing. How many of us need to hear that word as it relates to to pruning how many of us are walking through so many different circumstances that we can't explain at one time that it feels like our life is bunched up in this way and it's a chaos in there do you know that in the midst of that chaos you can still produce a healthy harvest of fruit for jesus christ and what is happening in the midst of those moments is you are not holding yourself up you are being upheld by the one who gave his life for you that's pruning that's pruning and how often do we get in the midst of those circumstances and say my god why have you forsaken me last i recall the last time those words ever had to be uttered were by the savior that now upholds us See, disciples bear fruit because God will not stop pruning you until you do. He will not stop working in you until you do. And this is where we get back to that confusion over the phrases remain. Some of your translations may use the word remain or abide. See, when we turn that into, when we turn abiding into an emotion or experience, we can be easily confused by our circumstances. But when we understand remain or abide as a fixed reality in heaven, we are comforted by this call to abide in him. True disciples are connected with me, Jesus says to us. United together, now abide in me. Remain connected to me. Get your life from me. Live your life out of connection with me. I'd like to thank Dr. Tony Evans for this next illustration, but I think about these three envelopes I've got here. Perhaps you just thought there was some mess on the, on the pulpit this morning, and that's not it. You know, if I think about the smallest of the envelopes, it says my name. Chris Jesse. This is me. It says Chris. And what happens in this moment, I've got three envelopes. I've got a small one. Slightly larger one, an even larger one yet. What happens when I receive the love of Jesus Christ is the love of Jesus Christ is now in me. The love of Jesus Christ is now in Chris. And the other truth of the good news of the gospel is that I am also in Christ. And so no longer is it me, but is Christ in me. 
And who do I live my life for the glory of? No longer me, but I live my life for the glory of one who is greater than I am. And Scripture instructs us that Jesus Christ is God the Father. And so now I'm not only in Christ, but I'm also in right relationship with God as my Father. So let me ask you about your circumstances one more time. Are your circumstances trying to get at you? Well, they've got to go through God to get to you. And if they, they happen to get past Him, you know that, mom, that moment when the scripture that He does not sleep or slumber isn't true just explicitly for you because of what you're walking through? Well, then they get to who? Christ. The one who gave his life for you. The one that says that you will not perish on this earth because of anything that you walk through. They get to Christ. And, and what if they just happen to get past those two things? Well, then who do they come to? They come to Chris. But when they come to Chris, they do not find him anymore. Who do they find when they open him up? They find Jesus Christ. Let us understand rightly, church. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Christ is in God. God is in Christ. So I am covered well by Jesus Christ and his heavenly father. As I seek to live my life for him. And what does that do? That helps to give us a faith for endurance in abiding in a permanent and life-giving union. Please know today that I am speaking to those who are gathered here today as believers in Jesus Christ. We have already made a declaration that we need a Savior. We see the great need and the divide between us and the holiness of God, and we say we cannot get there on our own. But there is a call to keep abiding. That the life of Jesus flows through every Christian and apart from his life, we can accomplish nothing on our own. Nothing of life giving, nothing that will please God. But because of his new life, we can now deny sin and live for him. I love the idea of talking about fruitfulness in the Christian life. But the truth of who Jesus is and the comprehensive nature of his work tells us this, that Jesus is both our Savior and now he is our Lord. The testimony of Scripture lets us know that sin no longer reigns in the life of the believer, but it does remain. It no longer reigns, but it remains. And it would be very easy for me to go to Galatians chapter 5 and begin to look at what spiritual fruit is. And it sounds wonderful. But if we have to be able to identify false vines, we have to be able to identify bad fruit as well, church. This is the one unit of measure that we're given as a church. It's the one call that we are called to have in discernment in our lives one with another. It's the thing that God gives us in order to see, is my life being lived for the glory of God or for the glory of, insert your name here. So, what's the bad fruit? Well, just before, in Galatians 5, we're given the fruit of the Spirit, we're given a comprehensive list of the works of the flesh. This is what we've been saved from. This is what no longer reigns, but it does remain. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21 now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, church, don't return to what remains. Return to Jesus who reigns. I don't often do so, but in in study of these passages, oftentimes I'll look at other translations of the scripture. There are times that uh, within translations, there's kind of a, a bandwidth of ways that passages may be translated, whether they're trying to put them in more modern terms, whether they're trying to summarize the concepts of certain lines, or they're trying to do word by word translation from the original language. So I don't often reference the Message Bible, but I found this to be helpful because you may be sitting there going, there are some terms here that I just don't understand. The Message says it this way. Galatians 5. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes, divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on. Why are the works of the flesh evident? Why, Why would verse 19 of Galatians 5 say that the works of the flesh are evident? Well, they're evident because they do not prioritize others above self. First of all, they don't, provide, they don't prioritize others above self. And secondly, they don't prioritize God above all. So the works of the flesh are evident when they are all about you and certainly not about God. Maybe when you put yourself in that place or that person in that place above God. And see, those who practice those works, those who return to those works, show that they have yet to encounter the transforming work, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, church. Because of the life-giving union with Christ, Galatians 5, through 26 tells us the type of fruit that we can produce. You know it, but let's read it together. Let's see it together. Let's let the power of the Word of God speak to our hearts and our minds this morning. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another you see the key to the christian life is christ's life in the christian 
The key to the Christian life is Christ's life in the Christian. Abiding in Jesus is not what makes you a Christian. I want to be clear on this. What makes you a Christian is the new birth and that saving faith, which is its fruit. Abiding is not the condition for becoming a child of God. Abiding is a blessing for being the child of God. Abiding is the evidence of being a disciple of Jesus. You become a Christian by faith, and the evidence of which is that you abide or remain in your devotion in the pursuit of Jesus and your desire to learn from him and to love him. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words to us today, church. Because of our connection with him, that we are united to him by faith, we have the power to live in a way that pleases him. And I wonder, for those who are in that category we talked about this morning as, as I began the sermon, those who are gathered here today and you have that, that Psalm 80 mentality where we're gathered together and you find yourself at a place where your soul feels dry and longing for that drink. And there's something about these words that you can live a fruitful and bountiful life for the one who laid down his life for you. And there's something that sounds so wonderful about that. We have to recognize it. That the Spirit of God exercises a transforming work of grace in the life of the person that walks in step with the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5 leads us to. And here we not only begin to understand the Trinity, we begin to understand the purpose of the Christian life. We begin to understand why it is that we're walking through the circumstances that we are. We begin to change our posture toward those circumstances. Perhaps it's because you're trying to take the grip of control. Perhaps it's because you are trying to be the victim of your own sinfulness. Perhaps you're trying to shift the blame away from your own heart. And the hubris of your own perspective is what's ruining the relationships around you. That one's not in my notes. I trust that one's from the Spirit for someone here today. Because of our connection with Jesus Christ, our union with Him. Our lives can produce fruit consistent with the character of the Spirit we're called to keep in step with. Consistent with the character of the One who laid down His life for us. Consistent with the character and the blessing of the One who created us in the first place. You know, we may notice that Paul, throughout his many letters in the New Testament, doesn't typically refer to fruits of the Spirit. He refers to it as fruit. It's a singular. And what we begin to realize is that the fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist to work through. The fruit of the Spirit is the flourishing of a heart that has been set free by the good news of grace. That's the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so as I come to a close today I hope that what we begin to see here is this clear contrast between what it looks like to see the true vine in Jesus Christ and other false vines that we may be tempted to connect to 
I think what we also see comes to us in verse 5. Excuse me, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And then those branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. How many of us want to see this cornucopia of fruit on the day that we are called home for eternity to be with Jesus? We hear this every day. Those who have been familiar names in our lives, maybe those we've been close to, those who are celebrity, those who have served in powerful political office, no matter your posture, your station, your situation, your accomplishments in this life, we all have that day coming. And what we want to see on that day is a life that says, look at the bounty of what Jesus did for me. Look at the bounty of the Holy Spirit at work in me. Father God, I lay this down at your feet as a crown your glory and yet what we're reminded of here is that is not a guaranteed ending for all of us there is a burning for eternity for those who do not have this saving faith for those who do not abide rightly in Jesus Christ it's a stark reality of eternity in verse 6 gathered and burned versus fruitful today and free for eternity. Church, I'm here to say to you today, if you find yourself in the gathered and burned future because of Jesus Christ, because of the salvation that he offers to you through his blood being shed on your behalf, you can begin today to live in a fruitful way. And you can have a future of freedom for all of eternity. But here's the key. It's in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is the truth for those who need to come into the saving grace of God. This is the truth of those who need the grace for abiding in Him. There is nothing. There is nothing. Church, say it back to me. There is you can do with your talents, your gifts, your money, your time that can save your soul or anyone else's. You can't even bear the fruit of one little spiritual grape without Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do apart from Him that has any eternal value. Oh, but because of Him, we can bear eternal fruit for the glory of his name. Church, let's stand together and respond in song.